passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. It is really good to be back with you. I've been gone for the last few weeks to get a little vacation, a little time off, which involved me getting COVID. And when I wasn't doing that, then I was down preaching in Spencer, but I've been looking forward to getting back and being able to teach with you this morning. So it's really good to be here. And as I said, we, we are in a series this summer. It's called, What Does the Bible Say? And today we're going to look at what does the Bible say about transgender, which is a big topic. Next week we're going to look at what does the Bible say about sin. That'll draw our summer series to the close, and we'll go back into the book of uh, 1 Samuel, and we'll start looking at David and Goliath. So that's just around this corner. Now, this morning as we look at transgender, let me give you a rough outline of how we're going to look at that. First, we're going to look at the transgender movement in our culture. Then we're going to look at what the Bible says about transgender. Then we're going to look at some of the science that we see out there in the news about transgender. And lastly, of this pastoral time of how we can help reach these people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it is so important that people that are far from God hear about him. So let's jump right in, get your outlines out. We're going to start with this. What is the transgender movement? Now, the transgender movement in America actually has its roots in the 60s and 70s with the sexual revolution that took place, but it really didn't take on prominence until the last 10 years in our society. So even though it's an old thing and from the 60s, it's really a new thing for us today, and it's being pushed in particular by our media and also by our government. Let me show you what I mean. So the transgender movement is encouraged by Hollywood. In 2014, uh, Netflix had a miniseries out called Orange is the New Black. It was a story of a transgender prisoner. Now, Laverne Cox played that role in that movie. But Laverne Cox did not just play the role of a transgender man who thought of themselves as a woman in prison, but Laverne Cox is legitimately a biological man who sees himself as a woman. And because of this role, uh, Laverne Cox actually landed on the cover of Time magazine. And in 2014, Glamour magazine gave Laverne Cox the Woman of the Year Award. Now, um, the, <laughs> there's Tom. He heard that one, yeah. Now, the, the Chicago Sun-Times actually pointed out um, that this is sort of strange. This is a biological man that was actually given the Woman of the Year Award. But the pushback against the newspaper at that time was huge. In fact, the newspaper retracted the article. Go one year later, 2015. You remember Bruce Jenner, Olympic decathlete, uh, coming out of the closet, so to speak, in a Barbara Walters interview, and the famous line, call me Caitlin. Now, Bruce Jenner was um, lionized and portrayed as a hero for that. Uh, Bruce Jenner was given the ESPN Arthur Ashe Award for Courage, and Glamour Magazine then made him the Woman of the Year in 20, 
15. For those of you who are counting, that is the second year in a row that Glamour magazine made a biological man the woman of the year. Now we could continue at that kind of pace, but we'll never get too far. Let's just move up to more, the more recent past, where our president appointed as the Assistant Secretary of Health a biological man that goes by the name of Rachel Levine. And from there, it's continued to move forward. And by the way, Rachel Levine was named the Woman of the Year by USA Today. So it's pretty clear that the media is pushing this whole transgender movement, trying to create transgender people into the heroes of our society. Now, let's go to the government. The transgender movement is being codified into law by our government. Maybe you don't know, but in 2016, the Obama administration and the Department of Education put out a mandate that all public schools were to allow access to sex-based facilities named bathrooms, locker rooms, showers, based on the gender that a child identifies with, not on the gender that a child is born with. That was a mandate from the Obama administration at that time. Now, it's continued. Today in New York City, if you intentionally misgender someone, you can be sued up to a quarter million dollars for intentionally using the wrong pronoun or the wrong name if somebody wants to go by a different gender. In 2017, going to the other coast, California already put in effect a law that if anyone in the medical community intentionally uses the wrong pronoun, or the wrong name for someone that is under their care, that person in the medical community can be jailed for doing that because it's a form of hate crime. And it gets even more interesting. The National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union, as we know, they actually sat down and worked with LGBTQ activists to come up with a document called Schools in Transition to guide the school systems about how they should handle transgender students. Let me tell you a little bit about what it says. A transgender student, say a biological male, is allowed to use women's restrooms, women's locker rooms, and women's shower facilities. It also specifies that um, parents and students are to be given no advanced warning to the transgender individual's presence in the locker room. It also says that if someone who is a biological woman is upset by this or doesn't like this, that she is to be told that that transgender man is, in fact, truly a woman and should be accepted. And if that biological woman continues to um, oppose this biological man's presence in the locker room, then that biological woman is to be allowed to use a separate changing facilities. But then it specifies, under no conditions is the transgender individual to be removed from the locker room of the gender they have chosen to identify themselves with. Now you're like, yeah. Is that really happening? No, it's not happening. How about the July, I'm going to put my notes here, July, I think it's 26th interview that was done with Riley Gaines. 
University of Kentucky NCAA national swimmer who competed against Leah Thomas. I don't know if you read that article. And in the article, she's interviewed about how difficult it was to compete against, compete against someone who until recently was fully a biological man. But then she goes on to say what was even worse is that Leah Thomas was in the women's restroom and Leah Thomas was using the women's showers and how awkward it was for her and the rest of the women in that NCAA finals when that happened. Now, I point this out to you because you need to understand that the transgender movement is not going away in our culture. It is a very powerful movement and that we as a church need to understand it we have to be able to dialogue with the people that are in it and, and buying the values that they're putting out in society. We need to understand it for our children because they're trying to indoctrinate your children into this lifestyle, making it acceptable. And also, we must understand it because if we are ever going to be able to share the gospel with people like this who desperately need to hear the good news and to be changed by Jesus Christ, we must understand what is happening in our culture so we can minister to them and love them. So let me ask some more questions here. Like, how many people are transgender? It's often a good question. One study in Sweden claims it's one in every 12,000 to 40,000 men are struggling with transgender issues. Another study done in Europe says it's one in every 50,000 men. Uh, UCLA, which is probably one of the most liberal uh, studies out there, says the transgender movement or people struggling with transgender is 0.6% of the U.S. population that's both male and, and female. Now, folks, that's a very small number. Uh, by our nation's standards, but it's still a very vocal group, a group we have to understand. Now, here's how we begin with this. How does the transgender movement think and speak? A missionary, when they go into a different culture, they have to learn the way that culture thinks. They have to learn the culture that language uses if they're going to ever have any hope about telling them about Jesus. So let me give you some brief pointers on how the transgender movement thinks and the language they use so you can understand, so we can minister to them. First thing, the movement believes a person's sex and gender can be different. This was first taught by Harry Benjamin. He is the founder of the transgender movement in uh, America. He would say that someone can have a biological sex that is one way, but a gender, which is a psychological tra trait, and it could be the other way. He was very um, well known for saying you could be one sex below the belt, but a completely different gender above the belt. So they see some sex and gender as different. One's mental and one is physical. Another term you often hear thrown around is this, gender dysphoria. That is the medical term for someone whose psychological and biological genders do not match. So if you go to the American Psychological Association, <coughs> they will not use the term transgender. It's always called gender dysphoria. This is someone who says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. 
are a man trapped in a woman's body. Another term we see thrown around is this, cisgender. Hey, Tom, can you grab me a cup of water? Thanks. This is the term used in the transgender culture to describe someone whose biological and psychological gender actually match. The term cisgender was actually created by the transgender activist community because prior to this time, it used to be, a, are you normal or are you abnormal? And obviously, they have different values. Like normal is the way you're supposed to be. Abnormal is something's wrong with you. But rather than have the language, so to speak, loaded in a certain direction, the transgender community likes you to say, are you cisgender or are you transgender? Because that makes it appear like both are rather neutral. Thank you, Tyler. Told you I'm working on the end of my COVID stuff. Gender binary. The term used by the transgender culture for those who believe there are only two genders. The, the transgender community believes that gender actually occurs on a spectrum. So you're not just man or woman. Uh, they could believe you could be a whole bunch of different genders. And you and I would be considered by them the gender binary people, but just man or woman. This is why when you go to Facebook, I checked recently, you now get to choose between one of 71 different genders out there. I didn't know there were 71, but by the way, they have a fill in the blank. And if you get enough people fill in the blanks, we get to 72, 73, because it's a spectrum in their mind. Gender fluid. This is the term used for a person who changes their gender on a regular basis. Uh, they're a male during the week, but on the weekend they decide to change to be a female. This is something that is real in that, in that world. Genderists and transphobia. The terms used in the transgender culture for those considered gender racists and those who do not embrace transgender values and lifestyle. So if you do not agree with transgender values and culture, you are called a genderist, gender racist. Or if you feel uncomfortable with these things, you're guilty of transphobia, irrational fear of a transgender um, lifestyle. Now specifically, and, and I've read a ton of stuff on this issue, but um, they specifically critique and don't like those who hold to Judeo-Christian values who believe that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. In fact, they say that those who hold Judeo-Christian values are responsible for the large number of transgender suicides in our country because we do not accept them, we do not embrace them and endorse their lifestyle. And you say, large number of transgender suicides? What are you talking about? Depending on which study you look at, it ranges between 31 to 50% of those who struggle with gender dysphoria will attempt suicide at least once at some time in their life because they do not feel accepted and embraced by society. Now, what does the medical community think of gender dysphoria? The American Psychological Association has a manual they published. It's known as the DSM manual. It's the diagnostic manual for the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders. The DSM was first published in 1952. 
At the time it was published, it listed homosexuality and transvestitism, transgenderism, as sexual deviancies. That's in 52. And you guys know about the sexual revolution in the 60s. And in the 60s and into the 70s, there was an incredible amount of pressure on the medical community specifically to consider homosexuality acceptable and a normal lifestyle. And in the 1972 printing of the DSM manual, homosexuality was removed as a sexual deviancies in the medical community. Now, pressure, political pressure continued upon the medical community, except it ramped up in more recent past. In 2013, what happened is the DSM manual removed transgender or gender dysphoria as a sexual deviancy. And it became seen as an acceptable, normal sexual practice. Now, you would say, well, what was it that caused the medical community to see homosexuality and also later on in 2013, uh, transgender as normal, healthy sexuality? There must have been new studies. There must have been new research done. Nope. Nothing medically was added to the table. It was all political pressure that caused the medical community to cave and accept those ex and consider those acceptable lifestyles. So much has changed since 2013, that's like 10 years, not even, that today if a psychologist is counseling a young man who's struggling with gender dysphoria and he is trying to bring his mental belief about his sexuality in line with which is obviously his biological reality of his sexuality, he can lose his license. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with that same psychologist giving that young man puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. That is how much has changed in the last 10 years in the medical community. Now, what does the Bible say about transgender? Allison Roberts is the first transgender Baptist pastor in America. Allison was born as Daniel Roberts, graduated from West Point, um, married, had four children, pastored Baptist churches in Texas. But then in the years 2004 through 2007, while Daniel was attending Baylor University, he came under the conviction that he was actually a, a woman born into a man's body, and he transitioned leaving his wife and children behind. Now, in the interviews with him, he'll openly say that to transition and become a woman, he had to reject much of what the Bible taught him about who he is and what God believes. What are some of the things that he had to reject? Let's look at this. God created us with a body and a soul, the Bible tells us, that are unified. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both <coughs> soul and body in hell. So the Bible is clear that we have a soul and that we have a body, but our soul and body are connected and unified in all parts. 
We never read in the Bible that God says, oh no, I put the wrong soul in the wrong body. It's not even like part of the biblical worldview. Now in church history, I will tell you that there were times where people saw a stronger bifurcation between the soul and the body in the early church with Gnosticism. People would say, well, all that matters is the soul. Therefore, I can be involved sexually with prostitutes and it doesn't affect the pureness of my soul. And the early church clearly said, no, that is not true. Your body and soul are unified as one. Plato taught the same thing where he said, matter is bad, spirit is good. So your spirit is good, but your body is bad. The church once again clearly said that is not true. In fact, the church pointed out, you know, that when we die, our bodies will be resurrected. And when our bodies are resurrected, they come back in the exact same gender we had in life just like Jesus' body came back, because our very self-same body comes back. You don't get a different one of a different gender. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I recognize that those who struggle with gender dysphoria don't like their body sometimes. They feel like they're in the wrong body. And I can relate to that a little bit. I mean, when I was in junior high, I didn't like the way God made me. It's like, God, why am I so tall? Why am I so skinny? Why can't I be strong like a lot of my friends and really athletic, not so clumsy? Why can't I be smarter? I know that I can't always get the best grades. And I was praying about that, really praying about it hard as a junior high student. And I remember what God taught me. And it's this, God doesn't make mistakes. And God made you, and he made you just the way he wanted you to be to accomplish the work he's given you to do. He made you with the right gender. He made you with the right body. He made you with the right brain, exactly the way he wanted you to be to accomplish the work he's given you to do. And God doesn't make a mistake. I wish... I wish there was some way I could communicate that to those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. God didn't make a mistake and put the wrong soul in the wrong body. He made you just the way he wants you to be to accomplish the work he's given you to do. What else does the Bible say? God only made two genders, a male and female. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, the transgender movement will say that our maleness and our femaleness are sort of an accident. And the way we look at this in our culture is just all culturally dependent. And we can always change these things. But that's not the way that God speaks about things. God created two genders and two genders only, and our genders limit what we can do, and our genders prescribe and tell us what God wants us to do. Like, for instance, I guarantee you it is not God's will for me to be a mother. I do not have a uterus. Obvious, right? Now, look at what the Bible says here, Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone, so a helpmate suitable to him was made for him and from him. And God made Eve to be Adam's helpmate. And if you are a wife, 
God's will for you is to be the helpmate for your husband. And he needs one, doesn't he, ladies? Yes, I knew I'd get an amen on that. But you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and we see this. A husband's job in marriage, according to his gender, is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. He sacrifices his life in love for her. And a wife's job in marriage, according to her gender, is to honor and love her husband like the church honors and loves Christ. So clearly, our, our genders prescribe what God wants us to do in this life. And especially if you're a husband, or specifically if you're a, a wife, the Bible prescribes these things. So the idea that a man can choose down to become a woman and have a whole different role in this world is completely foreign to the Bible's way of thinking. The Bible tells us this about sin. Sin gives us sinful desires. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin didn't just bring death into the world, but sin corrupts the thinking of people in this world. We see that right at the very beginning. Remember the two first brothers, Cain and Abel? And Cain, like, permanently disabled Abel, he killed his own brother. It became because of the sinful thoughts of his mind. So sin affects our thought life. And Romans says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed, amen, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sin, one of the ways it, it affects us is when people worship the creation rather than the creator, they become sexually twisted, sexually warped. Men become inflamed with passion for other men. Women become inflamed with passion for other women. And men become inflamed with a desire to become a woman. And women become inflamed with a desire to become a man. All that twisting is the way sin influences the world. The Bible also tells us gender-appropriate distinctions must be maintained. Deuteronomy 22.5 a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. In the Old Testament, cross-dressing was expressly forbidden. A man was to look like a man and to conduct himself like a man. A woman was to look like a woman and conduct herself like a woman. For a man to dress like a woman is to rebel against God's desire for their life in the most fundamental and base way, to reject dressing and conducting themselves according to their God-given gender, is a rejecting of God's basic will for their life. 
Now, some of you say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. <laughs> we don't always take that Old Testament stuff too seriously. But it's also in the New Testament, too. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay, let's just admit right up front, this is a difficult passage. But I'm not going to get into this morning, like first century hair length and head coverings for women and what they were. I want to look at this passage on a much higher level, which is abundantly clear. What Paul is saying is that in the church, men should look like men and act like men. And in the church, women should look like women and act like women. God is not honored when a woman acts like a man and conducts himself like a man, and God is not honored when a man conducts himself and acts like a woman. They should embrace their God-given gender. Now, the next thing we see is this. The Bible views any mutilation of the genitals with great negativity. Deuteronomy 23.1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This text is saying any guy who has his stuff removed is not to be in the assembly of the Lord. Now, it doesn't matter how that happened. It may have happened against that guy's will. It may have happened by that guy's will. But in God's house, men were to be full men. And that is the way God wants to be honored in his house on that. Now you say, what do you mean by guys, guys having their stuff removed against their will? Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, when a king conquered another country, they would often take the best and the brightest of the young men, and the king would have those people work for him in his high governmental offices. But oftentimes, those young men were castrated. And the reason that was done was, therefore, he didn't have to worry about anybody playing hanky-panky with one of his many queens. Daniel, by the way, in the Old Testament, was most likely castrated by Nebuchadnezzar against his will. He would fit that bill. But there were also men who um, emasculated themselves willingly. If you look at Egypt in the worship of Ishtar, Men castrated themselves willingly to be the priest, a feminine priest for Ishtar. You go to Rome, look at the worship of Sybil, same thing. Men would castrate themselves willingly to, willingly to effeminize themselves so they could be a priest, which is a very feminine priest in that particular cult. And God says it doesn't matter. My will is that men should be full men, especially in my house. Now, the Bible also forbids both masculine and feminine forms of homosexuality. If you realize this, but those who have transgender desires don't just desire to dress like the opposite gender. And they don't just desire to become and 
surgically look like the opposite gender, but in a sexual encounter they desire to function in the opposite gender, which is truly a homosexual form of sexuality. When a man tries to feminize himself to become like a woman so he could function in a certain sexual way in a sexual encounter. And the Bible clearly, by the way, condemns this. Romans chapter 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the ESV and other good translations which you have will have a footnote on this, this phrase here, men who practice homosexuality, to let you know that that is actually translating two different Greek words for homosexuality. The one word specifically describes a homosexual man who plays the male role in a homosexual relationship. The other word describes a homosexual man who is intentionally choosing to play a female role in a homosexual relationship. If you study that topic, you will find in homosexual relationships, one man plays the male role, one man plays the female role. And the Bible expressly says that both of those are forbidden. No matter which role you play, that's not God's will. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you live in that sinful practice. And that is what those who have gone through the whole transgender thing and the sex change operation they're doing. They're men desiring to play the female role in a homosexual relationship. Now, let's move out of the biblical side. Let's move on to the science side that we often hear. Are people born transgender? Thank you, Kevin. 2017, uh, Lady Gaga sung the halftime show at the Super Bowl. And she sung her 2011 hit favorite song called Born This Way. And the words go like this. It doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, bi, or transgender. And then she goes on and says, we've been born this way. Is that true? Are people just born transgender like you have brown eyes or blue eyes? Like you have blonde hair or brown hair? Are you just born that way? Now, that is a common talking point in the transgender community, but the scientific facts say absolutely not. Let me explain this to you. The most common uh, scientific reasoning is given is something called the prenatal hormone theory. Let me quote Chaz Bono, who is a transgender individual. He says, I think of it as hormones that, you know, went in the brain but not in the body. And that's all that being transgender is. It's just that the sex of your body and the gender of your brain don't match up. According to this theory, what happens to a baby while it is in utero is that opposite sex hormones happen to wash over the brain at some point in fetal development, therefore uh, sexualizing the brain into a different direction than the body. And many in the transgender community consider this an established medical fact. 
But studies have been done again and again trying to support it, and every single time they fail. In my studies preparing for this message, there was a study in Sweden in 2005 that was not able to prove it. Another study in Australia in 2009 that was not able to prove it. Another study in Japan in 2009 that was not able to prove it. Another study in Spain in 2014. Clearly it failed. It's not true. Another way that, that they've looked at this is family studies. If transgender is truly a gene, then you expect that children who have the same parent, you'd find great prevalence of transgender children if it's a gene that is passed from mother and father to their children. Now, in 2010, there was a family study done of a thousand people who struggle with transgender. How many of that thousand do you think had a brother or sister who also studied, struggled with this? Uh, no, more than none, 12. 12 out of 1,000. If this was genetically passed down, you would find a lot more than 12 out of 1,000 where their brother or sister struggled with transgender. But here's what they did find out. That those who struggle with transgender desires were awfully sexually sodomized as young children. And if they're growing up in the same house, and they're growing up with the same parents, do you think that it was just one child in the family that was sodomized, or more than one? I'll let you figure that one out. Now, here's another study. I think this is one of the best ones to disprove it. It's twin studies. Identical twins are genetically identical. So if you look at Someone who is uh, identical twins, and one of them is struggling with transgender desires, and it's truly a genetic connection here, then the other identical twin should also struggle with transgender desires. There was a study done in 2012. It involved 23 identical twins where one of them struggled with transgender desires. Only nine of the other twins struggled with transgender desires. Now, at first you're thinking, well, that's a, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of numbers. No, it's not. The twins are genetically identical. If it was genetically passed down, it would be 23 out of 23, and both twins struggle with transgender desires. It's only 9 out of 23, which means it cannot be genetically passed down. But remember, those twins grew up in the same household, with the same parents, and we've already learned that most of this psychological issue begins with sociological problems of children that were sodomized in the same household by adults. So ideally what happened, or not ideally, what seems to have happened is both twins experienced some of those sexual sodomization. What do we know about transgender desires in children? Uh, you need to understand that it's not uncommon for young children to experience some degree of gender dysphoria. This is the little guy who's growing up, and on the block there's just girls. And so he goes and he plays with, you know, the girls. And so he says, you know, I don't really like dolls, but I have to play with dolls, and that's what everybody else is my friends plays with. Now, 
what the medical community says if your young child seems to be uncomfortable in his gender, you are to give him puberty blockers or give her puberty blockers until they've grown older, and then they can decide for themselves what gender they want to be. And they say there's no consequences or no damage to puberty blockers because as soon as you go off puberty blockers, you'll resume puberty as normal. That's what it says on the websites. I even checked it myself in preparation for this. It's just not true. Puberty blockers cause terrible damage to young children. Just mentally walk this, like a psychological experiment. If you have a young man going through those adolescent stages of growth, and he has testosterone in his system like he normally should, he will grow taller, his bones will grow thicker, and will affect the way his brain forms. If you take young men and you put them on puberty blockers, they will be shorter, their bones will be thinner, and their brains will not form the same way. The studies I looked at say that young men on puberty blockers consistently struggle with complex tasks because their brains did not develop normally without the testosterone in their system. It's a terrible thing to do to young children. Here's the other thing you need to know. Those young children who struggle with gender dysphoria, if they are allowed to go through puberty normally, depending on which set of studies you look at, between 75 to 90% of them will um, outgrow their gender dysphoria and live normal lives. But if you put them on puberty blockers, it's almost 100% of them that will struggle in gender dysphoria in their adult years. So puberty blockers, which is what we're often told to put children on who struggle with this, are not good. It sexualizes them into a persistent transgender lifestyle. Is sex change surgery the answer for those who struggle with gender dysphoria? WPATH, which is the World Profession of, Professional Association of Transgender Health, says that sex change surgery is necessary for many of those who struggle with gender dysphoria. It's the only way that they can find relief from the mental anguish of being the wrong brain in the wrong body. Is this true? Is sex change surgery the answer, and does it provide those with gender dysphoria relief? I have to tell you, it's false advertising. No matter what surgery you go through, Either you have XX chromosomes in every cell of your body or XY chromosome in every cell of your body. Uh, Harry Benjamin, who's the founder of the transgender movement in America, said it this way, these persons in a strict scientific sense are only fooling themselves. No change of sex is ever possible. Just cosmetics is all it is. Now, how about results? Does sex change surgery really provide relief? Here are some of the statistics, by the way, I, I have for you. And by the way, I have all these things footnoted in my manuscript. If you want to see the footnotes, know where I'm getting this, just tell me. I'll email it to you. No problem. Um, here's this. 31% of Americans that commit suicide are transsexual. Between 30 to 50% of transgender patients commit suicide either in the year before or the year after their sex change surgery. 
up to 90% of those who undergo sex change surgery cannot be found in the years after the surgery, either from suicide or wanting to be lost, or from drug or alcohol in situations. Now, John Hopkins University, which is the founder of sex change surgery for a number of years, stopped sex change surgery because the doctor in charge of it very clearly said, I've discovered that sex change surgery does not resolve the underlying psychological disorders for those who suffer from gender dysphoria, so it's pointless. Now, John Hopkins does conduct sex change surgery again, but that's because they've been bullied and politically pressured back into it. Is sex change surgery even medically ethical? Let's do a mental experiment on this. Um, say there's a 20-some-odd-year-old young man who goes into a doctor, and he's limping as he comes in, and he says, Doctor, I'm an Iraqi war veteran, and I, I stepped in a mine, and I had my leg blown off. The doctor looks at him like, you're crazy. You're not even old enough to have been in the Iraq war. And you have two perfectly healthy, functioning legs. This young man is clearly delusional. But then the doctor can, or the young man continues to the doctor and says, doctor, I need you to amputate my leg so my body will now better conform to what I believe to be true about who I am. The doctor looks at him and says, I'm not cutting off a perfectly healthy leg on you. You're obviously loopy. But we have the exact same thing taking place today, where perfectly healthy men walk into a doctor and say, Doctor, I am actually a woman, and I need you to cut off a part of my body so my body better conforms to the better to the better conforms to the delusional beliefs of my mind. And for doctors not to do that is considered wrong. It's completely backwards. Our feelings are a reliable guide to tell us the truth. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible warns us that just because we feel something is right, doesn't mean something actually is right. We need a set of objective truth that stands outside of us like the word of God to tell us the truth. Because what happens is if we see something, we can talk ourselves into want something and then we rationalize ourselves into believing a lie. That's the way it works. Now, let me give you an example. Two summers ago, I got out of this stage and I went down to the foyer after preaching. And there in the foyer was somebody I have not seen for years. It was my wife, Cindy's best girlfriend from her 20s. You know, hadn't seen her forever. Um, she got married shortly after Cindy got married. Cindy and I had three kids. Uh, she had three boys. Um, and then we had her over our house and she started telling us what happened. You know, her husband, uh, years before that, had started watching pornography on the internet. He knew it was wrong, but sort of talked himself into believing it was okay. You know, needed a little excitement in his life. And that went from heterosexual pornography to homosexual pornography. 
that eventually opened the door to transgender. And he started saying to his wife, I want to dress as a woman. She said, no, no. But he did. Then he started taking cross-sex hormones as this continued over the years. And finally, he came home and said to her, I'm going to change and I'm going to become a woman. And she said to him, I told you, if you cross that line, we're done. She divorced him, walked out of the house, took the three boys with her. And she was in that foyer on her way to another part of the country to start a new life. He knew what was wrong. But over time, he talked himself into believing it is right. That's the way it works with us. This is why we need an objective set of truth that stands outside of us, that judges us and tells us what is right and wrong, which is the word of God. The Bible says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How did transgender activists view the family? I'll go through this quickly. Parents are, this is a quote from a transgender activist, are some of the largest obstacles that stand in the way of transgender kids being able to be their true selves. Uh, my in illustration for you is 2016, Anna Marie uh, Cargo, Cal, Calgaro, I can't say her name right, up in the cities. Uh, she had a 15-year-old son struggling with gender dysphoria. She refused to let her son go on cross-sex hormones. Transgender activists worked to be able to declare him an emancipated minor at age 15 to take him out of her life so he could go through gender change surgery. So very clearly they see the family as the enemy. Now let's get to some pastoral stuff. What should I do if my son or daughter struggles with gender dysphoria? First thing, show unconditional love if your child is struggling with these difficult feelings. If in frustration you push your child away, I guarantee you there's a transgender activist community waiting to pull them in. Love your children when they're going through hard times. God loves us. He doesn't leave us go when we're struggling with sin. Next, teach what the Bible says about God's gift of gender to our children, especially when they are young. Teach your children that God doesn't make mistakes. He made you just the way he wants you to be to accomplish the work he has given you to do. If you don't teach that to your children while they are young, social media and the internet will tell them lies about their gender trying to deceive them. Next, expect criticism from modern culture for holding to biblical truth about gender and sexuality. Also, say a firm no to any form of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or gender reassignment surgery. Here's another one. What should I do if a friend tells me they are experiencing feelings of gender dysphoria? Here's what I would recommend. Listen. Ask questions. There is a long history of struggle in their life for them to come to the point where they're willing to share that with you. If you shut them down, if you push them away, you will have no opportunity to let the word of God be brought into their life. Listen, love, and understand, and at the right time, turn them to Scripture. How should the church respond to gender dysphoria? 
remember there's a difference between someone who experiences feelings of gender dysphoria and someone that is embracing and celebrating a transgender identity. The difference between struggling with sin and celebrating sin. B, while there is no evidence for a transgender gene, remember that there are many psychological and sociological factors that contribute to this struggle, which I told you about earlier. And those with gender dysphoria are searching for a new identity many times. The identity that only Jesus Christ can give. Let me end with a closing illustration. I want to tell you about Laura. Laura was a blonde-haired, curvy woman who turned heads whenever she went into a room. One day she was talking to her therapist, and she said, can you maybe help me find a church? And he did. And many of the churches she went to received her, but when they knew Laura's story, they rejected her. But one church was different. They received her, and when they heard her story, they prayed for her. They kept her. They had her in Bible study because Laura was actually, by birth, Walt. Walt um, worked with NASA. Walt was part of birthing the Acura car line. And what had happened was when Walt was a little child at his grandparents' house, his grandfather had consistently raped him. And his grandmother had consistently put him in dresses, saying she wished that he was a girl, not a boy. And he struggled with that for years and eventually came out on this whole transgender thing. And when Walt eventually became a Christian, and Walt, as much as you can, went backwards. Today, Walt Heyer runs probably the nation's largest website called sexchangeregret.com, telling the biblical truth about the transgender movement and what this is all about, and urging those who struggle with gender dysphoria to turn to Jesus, who's the only one who could make them whole. And as Walt says, the problem is not that God did something wrong in your first birth. The problem is that every single one of us desperately needs a second birth through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word telling us the truth. Maybe not now. But sometime in the future, each one of us will run across someone who's struggling with gender dysphoria. I pray that we would handle that well. I pray that we would love those people. We would listen to their pain and hurt and give us wisdom in the right way in the right time to turn them to Jesus, who is the only one who can save their broken, sin-sick soul, just like he saved our broken, sin-sick soul as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.